Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of See It or Shove It. I'm your host, Greg, and I am here again this week to give you my thoughts on the latest movies playing in theaters and streaming on your TV. Also this week, I share the latest arrivals on streaming services and now streaming. We explore another time Oscar either got it right or got it wrong. Be Kind Rewind looks at the film you voted for, and I follow up on a previous Binge It or Singe It. For our featured movies this week... Miles Morales swings back into theaters in Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Two traumatized children try to escape the Boogeyman. A grieving young girl tries to bring her brother back to life in The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster. And a dominatrix blackmails her client in Sanctuary. First up, Miles Morales finds life gets more complicated the deeper he goes into the Spider-Verse. This is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Set one year after the events of the first movie, this opens with Gwen Stacy, voiced by Oscar nominee Haley Steinfeld, now back in her own universe, struggling to keep her identity on the down-low from her father. She encounters Vulture, a villain who drops into her reality. It turns out, she's not the only one on Vulture's tail, as she is joined by Spider-Man 2099 and Spider-Woman, both voiced by Oscar Isaac and Issa Rae. The two explain that they are part of a bigger spider society who work to correct inter-universe mishaps such as villains being in the wrong dimensions. Soon, Gwen is joining them and their mission. This includes Miles Morales, voiced again by Shameik Moore, who was bitten by a spider that wasn't supposed to be in his universe. But can Miles continue with his life with this team looking to correct the past? Miles is struggling with telling his truth to his parents, Rio and Jefferson, voiced by Luna Lauren Velez and Oscar nominee Brian Tyree Henry. He also encounters The Spot, a new version of Dr. Jonathan Owen, who can now control time and space, and now has both Miles as well as Gwen's gang on his tail trying to stop him from opening dangerous portals. Can they catch him before things spiral out of control? When I saw the trailer for this, I thought it would be a see-it. And I give this film a... See it! This movie is incredible in what it does. Be warned, though, it is a lot to process and digest. The thing I love about the Spider-Verse movies is that they are really deep and dive into psychological levels that the live-action films tend not to. I really liked how the film focused a good amount on the character of Gwen and how she is affected by her powers, as well as the struggles of Miles as he not only has to deal with his life as a Spider-Man, but also the everyday battles of growing up, going to school, dealing with a growing desire for independence from his parents, who don't want to let go, as well as keeping his identity a secret from them and the guilt he carries about that. It's a lot but it is all handled masterfully by a script that could easily be a confusing mess, but it isn't. The first film deservedly won the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature, and I'd bet that this is the one to beat again this year. The animation is great and is filled with Easter eggs throughout. 
I plan on seeing it again to process the storyline, as it sets up everything for the next installment, which is scheduled to be released next March, coincidentally just around the time Oscar voting is happening. Next, after the death of their mother, two sisters face demons both internally and in their bedroom closets. This is the Boogeyman. You're both having these manifestations. Following the recent death of their mother, sisters Sadie and Sawyer learn how to survive with the reality that they will never see her again. Sadie, played by Sophie Thatcher, takes Sawyer, played by Vivian Lyra Blair, under her wing as she now feels responsible for protecting her younger sister. Their father, Dr. Will Harper, a therapist played by Chris Messina, is dealing with his own grief as well as the problems of his patients. One day, a despondent man named Lester shows up at the Harper's home. And uh, he's begging the doctor to help him. He shares his story about how he has been accused of murdering his children when in fact it was a monster that had controlled his home and tormented his children. He warns Will that this monster will infiltrate his home when he isn't looking. Well, that time comes sooner rather than later, and Lester is found upstairs hanging in a closet after having a confrontation with the monster who is now taking up residence in the Harper home. Sawyer, who is already afraid of the dark and sleeps with a lighted ball in her bed, is the first to see the monster hiding in her closet. Sadie, who is dealing with the nastiness of girls at school, who have no empathy for the death of her mother, is getting tired of Sawyer's tales of a monster, until she herself has an encounter. Can Sadie convince those around her that the monster exists before it takes over everyone? When I saw the trailer for this, I thought it would be a see-it, and I give this film a... See it. I enjoyed this film for what it was, a tight PG-13 rated horror film that provided more scares than I thought it would have. Usually when a horror film is rated PG-13, it isn't very scary and the jump scares are preceded by warning music. Here, there were several that scared the bejesus out of me. The gore level was minimal, but the monster itself was terrifying. I liked how the story moved along nicely with a runtime of just over an hour and a half. Sure, the script was filled with cliches, but it isn't something looking to contend for spots on year-end best picture lists. If you're looking for a scary time at the theater without being too grossed out, I'd recommend this one. Next, a young girl is devastated after her brother is violently killed and she does all she can to bring him back to life. This is The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster. Your daughter has a very disturbing obsession. What obsession? Death. Just think about your brother. You didn't have the chance to bury him. Just wish I could catch who took his body. Death is the disease that broke my family. Sick of seeing it. 
In a modern telling of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, this film updates it by focusing on Vicaria, played by Lea de Leon Hayes, a young teen who has seen her fair share of brutality and violence in her neighborhood. When she was younger, her mother was shot to death while holding Vicaria in her arms, and more recently her brother Chris was violently killed while trying to flee the police. So, she sets up a lab in an abandoned building and begins trying to bring him back to life through a series of operations and experiments. Vicaria is a brilliant, gifted teen who wants to cure death as she views death as a disease. She lacks the support at home with her drug-addicted father, who clearly loves his daughter but is struggling too much to give her all the attention she needs. Because of her freedom, Vicaria is able to piece Chris back together after stealing his body as well as other body parts. When Vicaria finally figures out how to bring Chris back from the dead, her first mission is to exact revenge on the drug dealer who supplies her father with the drugs he uses. Things go terribly wrong and she becomes a target of the drug lords within her community. She soon realizes Chris is not the same person he was when he was alive, and he has incredible strength as well as an inability to control his emotions and anger. This leads to him terrorizing the community, who then begins searching for the monster. Can Vicaria get Chris under control so they can be a family again before it is too late? I give this film a... Mild See It. I enjoyed the film for the most part. Um, I just felt some parts were draggy and boring, but once the action started and Chris came back to life, it was off and running. I really liked how it took the classic Mary Shelley tale and modernized it for today's society and how it weaved in some social justice messages at the same time. You could tell this was a low-budget first film by the director, um, which is not to say it was bad, but it just wasn't as engaging or filled with effect as maybe a movie with a bigger budget could have done, period. But it was effective in what it was trying to do, and I think if you like independent films, you may enjoy this one. Otherwise, this is not a movie for everybody. But again, I liked it enough and was engaged with it throughout. Finally, a dominatrix in danger of losing her job takes to blackmail. This is Sanctuary. This is not a good idea to keep doing this. How? Your new job? You wouldn't be able to do it without what I taught you. What do you want? Half of the salary of the job that I got you. You're insane. It would be a story. CEO shoves cotton swab into own penis when commanded. Denver dominatrix tells all. I mean, when you say it like that, it makes it sound weird. There's a camera hidden in this hotel suite. I don't want to play right now. I'm not. Hal, played by Christopher Abbott, is an heir to a hotel fortune following the death of his father. He realizes that upon succeeding the CEO role following the death of his father, he needs to rebrand his image and cannot risk having it discovered that he has a penchant for bondage and sadism. He gets a visit from his regular dominatrix, Rebecca, played by Margaret Qualley. 
Following a session that involves an interview for a CEO role and ends with him naked on his hands and knees scrubbing the floor of a bathroom before he edges and masturbates without being allowed to ejaculate as Rebecca verbally humiliates him. Following this situation, he lets her know that the visitations must end. He buys her an incredibly expensive watch and bids her goodbye, knowing that Hal is not cut out for his new role. Rebecca informs him that any strength he has is because of her, and she wants more than a watch as payment for helping him develop a backbone. In fact, she wants half his salary and threatens to expose their visits by releasing a video of their sessions to the board of directors at the hotel. What follows is a game of cat and mouse, as Hal does everything he can to stop her from doing it. I give this film a... See it. This is another one that's not for everybody, but I enjoyed it. It had me going as to whether or not Rebecca was telling the truth about having a video or whether she was just doing her threat out of desperation as she had recently ended her relationship with her fiancé and quit her job and it was in desperate need for money. It kept me guessing and the performances by Quali and Abbott were very good. I really enjoyed watching how they bounced off one another with their own internal desperations. The film moved along nicely, and it wasn't overly graphic, even though the subject matter was. It ended very nicely, and I was very satisfied with the ending. Um, And it was one that I didn't really see coming. So if you like strange, bizarre, independent films like this, I think you'll like this one. But again, the subject matter is not for everyone. That's it for this week's featured films. To recap, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is in theaters now and is a see-it, and is my pick of the week. The Boogeyman is in theaters now and is a see-it. The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster is in theaters starting this Friday, June 9th, and is a mild see-it. And Sanctuary is in theaters now and is a see-it, but it is not a film that everyone will enjoy. I don't have any quick picks this week, so let's move on to my segment where I share where you can find some of the films released within the last year that are now available for home viewing. This is now streaming. The moving film The Inspection, about a closeted gay man serving in the military, features stunning performances by Jeremy Pope and Gabrielle Union. It is now streaming on Showtime, and you can hear my full review on episode 46. Andrea Riseborough's controversial Oscar-nominated performance in To Leslie, about a woman who can't seem to get control of her own life, can now be streamed on Netflix. It is a good performance that deserves some attention during awards season. Michael B. Jordan returns as Adonis Creed and also takes over the director's chair in Creed 3. It was a great film to watch in theaters, and I hope it transitions well on TV. Find out Friday when it begins streaming on Amazon Prime Video. You can hear my full review on episode 65. And last year's box office champion Avatar The Way of Water finally hit streaming services on Wednesday, June 7th. You can watch on Max and Disney+. Plus. You can hear my full review on episode 48. Now it's time for me to decide if Oscar got it right or Oscar got it wrong. 
In 2004, the nominees for Best Picture were Martin Scorsese's The Aviator, the Johnny Depp starring Finding Neverland, Clint Eastwood's Million Dollar Baby, the Ray Charles biopic Ray, and the Vineyard buddy dramedy Sideways. Here's how the race turned out as Barbara Streisand and Dustin Hoffman presented Best Picture. Proudly we present these five outstanding films. The Aviator, Michael Mann, Graham King producer. Finding Neverland, Richard and Gladstein and Nellie Bellflower producer. Million Dollar Baby, Clint Eastwood, Albert S. Ruddy and Tom Rosenberg producers. Ray, Taylor Hackford, Stuart Benjamin, Howard Baldwin producers. Sideways, Michael London producer. And the Oscar goes to... No, the Oscar goes to... Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, Go ahead. Well, the problem is I forgot my glasses, but... Okay. okay, okay. <clears throat> I'm so happy to give you this again, Clint. Million Dollar Baby! Going into the night, the race was between Million Dollar Baby and The Aviator. And I think that Oscar got it right. The film focused on Frankie Dunn, played by Eastwood, a boxing trainer who trains his fighter to always protect themselves. He trains Maggie Fitzgerald, played by Hilary Swank, and the two form a bond that eventually goes beyond the ring after Maggie suffers a debilitating accident during a fight. The Oscars were held on February 27, 2005, and going into the night, The Aviator led the pack with 11 nominations, followed by Million Dollar Baby and Finding Neverland with seven each. Prognosticators were hoping this would be the year Martin Scorsese got his due after being passed over for decades. The film had won the BAFTA, the Golden Globe, and the Producers Guild Awards for Best Picture. Usually this is a strong indication that it was on track to win Best Picture. However, in the week or two leading up to the Oscars, the tide seemed to be shifting toward Clint Eastwood's late entry in the field that was released at the very last minute and was allowed to percolate throughout the awards season to generate the kind of buzz and momentum we have seen in recent years. It turned out that Scorsese would have to wait a little longer to get his due as Eastwood's film took home awards for four of its seven nominations, and they were all big ones. Best Picture, Best Director for Eastwood, Best Supporting Actor for Morgan Freeman, and Best Actress for Hilary Swank, who earned her second Best Actress award in five years after previously winning for Boys Don't Cry, becoming only the third person to earn two leading acting Oscars at the age of 30, joining Louise Rayner and Jodie Foster for that honor. Million Dollar Baby is an expertly filmed movie, and it has a story that'll hit you right in the gut, especially the final act that will tear your heart out. I found The Aviator to be a bit boring and bloated, and while Cate Blanchett deservedly won her Oscar for her supporting role as Katherine Hepburn, I wasn't overly keen on the movie as a whole. Million Dollar Baby had me hooked from beginning to end and deserved its wins. So, do you agree or do you think I'm nuts? Head over to my Instagram and let me know. Now it's time for my segment where I look at films from the past. This is Be Kind, Rewind. Continuing my series where I take the 52-week movie challenge, this week's topic was a musical film, and the choices were Chicago, Xanadu, and The Wiz. You voted, and the film you selected is The Wiz.
The Wiz is a reimagining of the classic 1900 novel, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. First staged as a Broadway musical in 1974, The Wiz follows the journey of Dorothy, a 24-year-old teacher from Harlem, played in the film by the legendary Oscar-nominated actress Diana Ross. One night, during a blizzard, Dorothy is transported to the Land of Oz, which resembles a fantasy version of New York City. She encounters and befriends a scarecrow, played by Michael Jackson, a tin man, played by Nipsey Russell, and a cowardly lion, played by Ted Ross. In order to get home, she needs to meet with the Wiz, played by Richard Pryor, as he is the only one powerful enough to send her back to where she came from. Complicating matters is an evil witch named Eveline, played by Mabel King, who wants Dorothy dead. Produced by legendary Motown producer Barry Gordy, the Wiz faced a challenging shoot. Gordy originally wanted Stephanie Mills to reprise her role from Broadway. However, his once protege, Diana Ross, really wanted the role. However, he told her that, with her being in her mid-thirties at the time, she was too old to play a young school teacher. She went behind his back and convinced the producer to agree to finance the film only if she was cast in the role. It worked. However, original director John Badham was not pleased and quit the film and was replaced by Sidney Lumet. Filming took place in and around New York City in late 1977, with the abandoned site of the 1964 World's Fair filling in as Munchkinland, Coney Island was used for the Tin Man's location, and the World Trade Center filled in as Emerald City. Quincy Jones begrudgingly agreed to work on the score of the film as a favor to Lamette, and it eventually led to a successful working partnership with Jackson, as Jones went on to produce Jackson's iconic albums Off the Wall, Thriller, and Bad. The film was released on October 24, 1978, and was a huge critical and commercial failure, earning only $13.6 million on a $24 million budget. Critics ripped apart the film, especially the casting of Diana Ross, who was simply miscast in the role. They also said that what had worked so well on stage did not translate successfully on screen. Even Ray Bolger, who played the Scarecrow in the original Wizard of Oz, was not a fan, saying it was overblown and would never have the universal appeal that his film had. Escaping most of the critical notes was Michael Jackson, who received good notices for his tender portrayal of the Scarecrow. Jackson said at the time that working on the film was the greatest experience he had ever had. The film ended up earning four Academy Award nominations in art direction, cinematography, adaptation score, and costume design. Regardless of the failure of the film, the soundtrack will forever remain a classic with such hits as Ease On Down the Road, Can You Feel a Brand New Day, and Home. The Wiz is available to stream on Amazon Prime Video. Next week's Be Kind Rewind topic is a film set before 1900, and the choices are Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and Gladiator. Come to my Instagram, at theatershoveit, to vote for which film I should focus on. The post with the most likes will be next week's segment. Now, let's move on for a quick binge it or singe it. This is just a brief follow-up to a previous Binge It or Singe It. A few weeks ago, I reviewed the first few episodes of Amazon Prime's The Power and Apple TV Plus's The Last Thing He Told Me. At the time, I said both were Singe-its, and I would return once I had finished watching to let you know if they improved. Well, I finished both, and sadly, they didn't improve. They sucked. That's it.
That's also it for this episode of Cedar Shove It. One programming note, I announced last week that I would be bringing you a special summer miniseries in honor of my recent 50th birthday titled 50 Years, 50 Movies, where I take you on a journey through the development of my cinematic taste. I am currently working on the first episode featuring the first 10 years of my life, and I look forward to bringing you the first episode in the next week or two. Thank you so much for joining me and supporting my podcast again this week. I appreciate the time you give me. Support your local theaters by going to see some of the movies I reviewed, and while you're at it, share my podcast with your movie and TV-loving friends and family. Don't forget, you can drop me a line at seeitorshoveit at gmail.com and let me know of any ideas or suggestions, or just to say hey. Follow me on Instagram and letterboxed at seeitorshoveit and rate me wherever you get your podcast. Come back next week to hear my thoughts on the new releases, including the return of the Transformers in Transformers Rise of the Beasts. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great week. This episode of Theater Shove It was recorded in Orlando, Florida, and is produced by Gregory G. Productions. Music by Mysterio Music. All rights reserved.